Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off on a road less travel, never looking back. So, an introduction here. This is Jack Smith. He's uh, one of my one or two closest friends. He's Good number friends. one, dude. Who's number, number one? He's up there. Sam tells everyone they're the number one. So, <laughs> no, it's like there's like a couple guys who are the crew. We have like a tight knit group. Jack doesn't like to brag. I'm going to brag for him. But basically, he started this company called Vungle, which was sold to Blackstone, the large PE company, for I think 750 million in cash. They had raised a little bit of money, but not a significant amount. It was a wonderful exit. He also helped start this company called Ship, which crashed and burned, but it was awesome. It was cool while it lasted, and it was a good idea. And then he was, uh, he had his, did you know, Sean, Jack had his hands, he was involved slightly with that. Remember that credit card that went viral in 2013 or 14, where it was like called Coin, and you click a button and it would change your debit cards. You could have five cards on one card. Yeah, it was Sweet concept. It was one card and then you just switch over, you just push a button. It's like, now it's your business. Now it's your travel rewards card or whatever else. I think it was a Kickstarter project, right, Jack? Or like it got yeah, a big it started kind of- as Kickstarter, yeah. Yeah, it was like one of the first to use um, Sandwich Video, which is the guy that right. has done videos for like Square and all these lot after. His was one of the first ones to do it. And then it kind of went viral, mainly because of the video. So talk about the sandwich guy, because that guy is interesting, right? So he has, if you haven't seen it, basically he was like an ad agency or not ad agency, I don't know what to call it, but marketing agency. And he would make videos. And so people wanted their version of the the Dollar Shave Club launch video, which was like this really like funny, entertaining, but like told the company's story really well and got a bunch of customers, got a bunch of hype. And so if you go to their portfolio page, it's like kind of like a bunch of big winners like Slack and others. And at some point, you know, he they were just charging so and and the guy himself i think his name's adam is that right yeah, yeah. he's in all the videos which is cool um he's, a, he's he, a good actor he's like a good straight man you know he like is the perfect like normal dude just explaining this cool thing and uh it got to the point where it was too expensive he would only take equity or he would like require equity now for for these projects that he's helping launch into kind of the stratosphere is he still doing that or have they pivoted or what, what's what's the latest because that was a few years ago well actually coin was one of the first ones so i think coin it was something like the video was something like seventy five thousand dollars or something i don't know right. so they paid in cash but actually because was because of the video that they just did so much better than they thought then the guy just told him like hey dude like you pretty much blew it out of the park for us so he just like gave him it Amazing. Even though he never asked for it. <laughs> and then so after that, then the guy was like, hmm, probably should ask for just equity and right. any future deal that I do. If this guy's giving it to me voluntarily, I probably should have asked for it. What we're going to talk about today is collectibles. And the reason why Jack is here is because Jack sold Vungle, is it two years now or a year ago? Yeah, something like a year, one year. But prior to that, he wasn't working there. He left and has had a lot of free time, like three years of free time, four years of free time. <laughs> and what Jack does in his hobby is so weird. He just like buys and reviews tons of stuff and he definitely returns a lot of it but he just could he just consumes information and he and he loves trying new products like he's up so like i remember for his birthday recently his wife and me and a couple buds she got we went to tahoe and she got him a cake that was an amazon box like that's what he's famous for is like <laughs> just buying stuff and for my wedding the gift that he got sarah and i was he wrote two or three pages and he said this is the best soap for black women's hair this is the best low sugar gummy bears this is the best foot cream this is the best towel because it has copper in it and copper prevents mold and he like explained and so he bought us like probably a thousand dollars worth of just gadgets that were his best so he just reviews everything and the his latest kick is collectible um 
Hold on, before we even go to the collectibles, because that's an amazing intro. Jack, why do you do this? This is so funny that you do this. Just um, like, uh, I mean, Sam is exaggerating a thing about like best shampoo for black people's hair. Uh, but, that's like, what you got her, dude. You got her uh, diva yeah, I mean, curl. Just, yeah, but it was that's like the best shampoo in general. Like, it doesn't matter that it's made of African Americans. Well, she's black, and I thought yeah. that you were being thoughtful, and you got her like I don't know. I just got her good shampoo. But it's just like if I'm buying something like a backpack, then I want to have the best backpack. Right. So I'll just buy 10 of them, try them out, and then return nine. And then. And were you always this way? Like, you're like, I got it. Because I remember even when Product Hunt launched, I think you were the number one person on Product Hunt. And you were like a sure. successful, busy dude at this point, but you were like, just like kind of these randos on Product Hunt, but you were like all over it. You were on every, you had the number one most hunted products or something crazy too. So have you been this way for a long time? So I think. Product Hunt is similar with the collectibles thing in terms of just like I joined when it only had a couple of hundred users. And so it's like identifying something nascent and then seeing if there's obviously when things are small, there's more opportunities around because there's lots of competition. So Product Hunt just joined early. And then, as you said, I was kind of posting every day. I, I basically built a bot to post to it. Nowadays, you can schedule a post, but then you couldn't. So I just built a bot to schedule a post each day. But I was still kind of manually involved having reviewing products. But it was kind of just fun to be seeing what's new. I just like trying out new stuff because then I feel that is when there's like opportunities. Okay. And I called you a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, because... I had this very interesting collectibles situation and I I didn't even know you were into collectibles, honestly. I just called you because I said, Jack's really, really clever. And I think for this business opportunity, it's a, you either out clever it or you don't do it at all. And so I just thought, only talk to the most clever guy I know. And it turned out that you were like super heavy into the collectible space and you started telling me all these interesting things. And now you can, we'll talk about it. And then anything you don't want to talk about, we can just cut afterwards. That's no, no problem. Just pull that back. But basically let's start with what I learned on that call. Okay, so I call Jack and I say, hey, Jack, I don't know if you know anything about the collectible space. And you were kind of, of course, understated. You were like, yeah, I know a bit, which really was like, I know everything. You know, you don't know shit. And you were like, yeah, I know a bit. And I said, you know, there's this opportunity to buy this multi-million dollar collection for like kind of 10 cents on the dollar, but I don't know what I would do with it. I don't know how I would flip it. How would you flip this? And what you told me was like, okay, there are these platforms out there, these new emerging platforms for collectibles, like Rally Road, like Otis, And you said, I've been using these. And in fact, here's some of the things I learned from this conversation. Jack is not only an investor in a couple of these platforms, he is the number one probably power user of all these platforms. You are, it's like product hunt all over again. You are all over these platforms while they are small. You're probably the most active user on the platform buying and selling stuff. You have a full operation in the Philippines kind of like helping you, uh, you know, like a machine work the system. So tell us what you could tell us about this stuff. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you said, like um, the CEO of Masterworks, just like they randomly just like sent me an email, like, hey, can we chat? And then we got on the call and they're just like, dude, what are you doing? We're looking at the logs, this many orders, like the time they're like, and then I just told them like, hey, I have these guys in the Philippines, like $3 an hour, just placing bids because they were like, yeah, because we were pretty confused. Like this guy who sold his company, is he just bored in Hawaii that he's just right. logged onto our platform 24-7, like bidding on stuff? So they were a bit confused. Um, yeah, they, they think you're like a virus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or they were just trying to figure out like, dude, what are you actually trying to do? Like, how can we help you? Because this is not a good use of your time. To... Right. But it's just, as you highlighted, like emerging platforms, there's kind of just different arbitrage opportunities somewhat. And what I've seen is, um, so from speaking, I've spoken to like the founding teams of these different platforms. I believe I'm like, they didn't want to confirm. They just said, you're the number one or number two user, right. probably in terms of like assets under management there, because they're so small, it's not that hard to be their biggest user. Right. What I learned as well, speaking to these, some of these others is that you've kind of got a few different users that are using these platforms, the majority of whom would fit into the they're calling in stocks is just like the Robin Hood users that just don't care about valuation and they're just buying stuff just because it sounds cool, you know? So kind of what they're saying about stocks with Robin Hood is what the most users and collectibles are doing as well. And then you actually, it seems like you have sophisticated collectible people, more sophisticated than me. I don't know anything about what these things are actually worth. You're actually seeing a pretty um, strong 
the market seems to be working there. Like assets that undervalued, they jump to being valued what they maybe should be. So for example, there's this Pokemon card collection that launched maybe like six months ago. And then now the platform got an offer that, hey, someone actually wants to buy the collection 4x the price they listed it at. And actually what they do is they let the people that own that piece, they vote, should we sell or should we not? And they actually voted not to sell. And now it's trading at like 6x the price. And so I was speaking to a founder of one of the other platforms and he's like, yeah, that piece was undervalued. Somehow people that are really into Pokemon cards obviously have found the platform and found that it's undervalued. And now they've kind of bid it up to what it kind of should be valued at. How about we structure this conversation this way? So first of all, we got to get background here, which is last week, Sean brought up PSA. What's PSA stand for? Is that important? Uh, I don't even know. Um, Sports. Yeah, it's a it's a what, it was a, a company that grades sports cards, right? They grade not just sports cards; they'll grade other cards as well. They were doing I looked it up. They're doing about eighty million in revenue, twenty million in profit. Publicly traded company, and then this guy named Nat Turner, alongside Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen is the uh, guy who was inspired the TV show Billions, or partially he owns the Mets now, big time billionaire. And then a couple other folks. Nat Turner is a tech guy who's very wealthy now. And they bought this company. And I actually don't know what they're going to do with it. Maybe just like make it cooler. Anyway, Sean brought this up and it was very interesting. And we're like, all right, let's do a whole episode just on collectibles. So for this conversation, how about we structure it like this? Let's just go through some of the interesting platforms and some of the big winners and some of the trends in this collectible space. Does that sound good? Well, and to highlight how I got into it is that um, I actually started looking at the collectible stuff based on the... um, because I was listening a bit to the podcast that Sam, you did with Gary Vee. And, you know, you just kept asking him, like, what's the best opportunity? And he just kept saying, sports cards. And then you were like, yeah, yeah, but what else is interesting? And he just was like, I can't think of anything. Just sports card is the only decent thing. And so I'm like, okay, well, if he's going into it that heavily, then maybe it might be interesting. And so actually how I started is I, again, with people in the Philippines, I just bought my own collection of 500 or so trading cards, like individual ones. And I'm storing them. But then I was like, this is like so much work trying to research what the actual fair valuation for a card is and doing all the accounting for it and then listing it to sell. So even though I did actually buy and flip some cards for a profit myself, I'm like, this is kind of loads of work. And then I found that there's these fractional ownership platforms. And so they're basically doing all the work. And then they basically bring you like, hey, this any collectibles but some are trading cards. It's like, here's a really valuable card. It's worth $100,000, but users can buy like $25 pieces of it. Let's talk about Rally Road because I think that's actually the one, the coolest one. Sean, do you know yeah, Rally Road? So. Yeah, so, so I'll give you kind of the two second, I'll give you the layman version of Rally Road. So Rally Road is a platform that's letting you invest in what they call alternative assets. And these are things like, it could be a vintage car, it could be a Michael Jordan rookie card, it could be a Pokemon collector set that's, you know, unopened. And, you know, they'll put it up and it'll be thousands of dollars. And then like Jack saying, you could do the sort of fractional ownership component where I can buy, I don't have to buy the full collection, but I can invest in that asset in the same way, you know, I could buy shares of Apple, I can buy shares of Tesla. That's the way that Rally works. Is that the, they capture the main bits there, Jack? Did I leave anything important out? One of the main bits is that, it, the way they've designed it is maybe like Tinder and Robin Hood-esque in that they've basically made a game. It's yep. extremely gamified and addictive and awesome that basically they'll just be like, all right, we're dropping this asset. Like they do a drop, kind of like an IPO. You buy in and then basically that asset is locked up for three months. And then they'll basically trade each asset once a quarter, but only for one day. And so they're like, all right, this asset is trading that day. So basically, they're kind of compressing all the demand also into one day. And then it's really gamified because when they drop the IPO, they're like, oh, it's selling out. And it sells out in like under a minute. So like, unless you're on the app at that time, you miss out. So it's really gamified. And they don't actually have that many products. I think they have like dozens of products on there, right? Like they have like a... They have a few. It's blown up a lot recently. It's got a lot more recently. Well, as of recently, they had like dozens. And it was like a million dollar Ferrari to a uh, like a Babe Ruth baseball card, Harry Potter a first edition. So it was kind of a random collection, but it was all so cool looking. They make it look yeah. so cool. It's the Chicago Bulls six championship rings from Michael Jordan's run. It's a complete set of six rings. And I just click notify me when this goes live because it's you know valued at $300,000 and you can own a piece of the Michael Jordan kind of dynasty championship rings that they have. 
And this company so has of, raised about $30 million. They're based in New York. Very interesting company. So one other bit as well is that um, I think a lot of their users, they're not doing anything about valuation. They just want to own a piece. Maybe they support that sports team. And they're like, oh, wow, I can own a piece of that ring thing. So what they do is when you invest, they also, sometimes they give, sometimes they actually sell memorabilia associated to it. So you can get like a share certificate being like, I own a piece of... Right, something you could put on your wall at home because otherwise you have nothing to show for it, right? Yeah. That's, that's how when I used to go buy like an autographed basketball, that's going to sit in my office and people are going to see it and you lose that value. You gain a lot of convenience, but you lose that value when you use one of these platforms. So it's smart, really smart. I think they're doing a bunch of really smart things. So I'll give you some examples of what's smart. So the things Jack talked about where they kind of gamified it, I think is really smart because... In any marketplace, like a marketplace is all about liquidity. And early on, you have pretty poor liquidity in the marketplace. So by compressing it where it's only going to IPO for one day and it's only going to trade one day a quarter, you're compressing all of the whatever little supply and demand you have gets like aggregated into a short time window. So it actually feels like you have high liquidity during that period. So I think that's that's really important. That also creates you know FOMO and it builds hype and it drives it drives more demand, which is another way to fill the marketplace is by sort of manufacturing or amplifying the demand that already exists for it. So I think that's like a really smart business and product decision that I honestly don't think these businesses would work if you didn't do that at the early stage. Where are they storing all this stuff, Jack? Because you were toying around with this idea of doing this, like, uh, what's it called? A free port? Or is that what it's called? A, is... That's what it's called in the art world. There's different rules for art and other assets have other rules. So the free port stuff is specifically to art. So um, it depends on the platform. But um, what, let's say, Otis, for example, is doing, that they're just storing their stuff they actually outsource it. They're just storing it in a normal collectibles vault. They're actually using um, PWCC, which is what I store my cards in. PWCC is a company that does their own grading, but they're not really reputable like PSA. So they're kind of just not that reputable for grading, but they grade stuff and they're the largest auction house for trading cards. So it's kind of like the, whatever the big art auction houses are, They are that for sports cards. But then as well, they're in somewhere, maybe it's Texas or somewhere that basically doesn't have any sales tax. And then there was news articles about it. They spent $3 million building a vault in the basement of their office, kind of like a bank vault. And so they can store trading cards for you as well. So they're kind of a all services shop, grading, storage, listing it on their own auction house or eBay, and they also do lines of credit against your collection, which I can talk about more. But um, Otis and stuff store their trading cards there. However, some of the places like Masterworks actually have their own art gallery and are doing their own storage in New York because one of the aspects they wanted, and Rally Road does this with some of their cars, is pre-coronavirus, a bit tougher now, they wanted it that users come and see the assets they own. Like, hey, come and see the car. And you can tell your buddy, like, I own... $25 of this car that you can see it in real life, a real life museum art gallery. So if I was going to invest in these companies, I think if I was going to rank them, uh, PSA would have been number one because uh, I think that they have uh, the dominance of, the, they're the certifiers. And so they become the kingmakers. And obviously the demand has far outstripped their ability to fulfill it. So Jack, give people a sense of like, you send something in to be graded by PSA, roughly what does that cost? Roughly what's the turnaround time right now, which I think is kind of shows the opportunity that they have. Well, you say opportunity they have, but they're like the dinosaur incumbent, you know? So it doesn't, just because they've got the opportunity doesn't mean someone else can come up and grab it. PSA, basically all of the collectors respect their gradings, but this is because they have decades long reputation and history of being the market leader. There's actually a competitive company called Beckett, which is, they were head and head, but then basically Beckett, maybe even like, a decade ago, I'm not super expert on this, but this is what I remember. They basically had a scandal where some like professor had been like doctoring cards. He would just like take a knife and like cut the edges. Like he was like really precise. And then it kind of got exposed that he had been doctoring them and Beckett had graded them like, oh, these are 10 out of 10. Amazing. And then so basically all the collectors started boycotting them and like, we don't trust their ratings. So PSA is like the only one that people trust because of these decades-long reputation. So if someone new comes up, they're not going to respect them because they don't have a history and track record. I don't know if I would invest in them now because I'm not sure 
how much growth potential there is. You know, it's a decades old one. But to answer your question, right now, apparently they have a massive backlog, like four to six weeks or something. And basically the price that you pay to have your card graded varies based on what you estimate it's actually worth. So they have different price brackets. Like if your card is, you think it's worth over 5,000, then you have to pay more. Um, I think the cheapest is something like $25, Yeah, I think it might go down as low as 10, but but yeah, they have like kind of like a three-month backlog right now. And I think that the opportunity for them would be you have the brand and the trust. Can you use technology to drive you know, more velocity, more volume, and, and make more money, right? And so I think they have the defensibility, but they don't have the innovation yet. The other thing that I think is interesting is PWCC. Ever since you told me about that, I really liked what they're doing. Can you talk about the lending thing that you're doing with them? I thought that was really smart. Yeah, so um, I actually, I've only got a small amount of money here, but this for me is like a really good, safer side of investment opportunity. So right now, like my wealth advisor and stuff, like typically wealth advisors will want you to just buy bonds as right. in a safe. But then even though they've tried explaining to me like multiple times about bonds, I still don't get what the hell they are. And I'm just like, <laughs> these are so boring because they want you to just put your money in that. And then it's like, oh, this will go up 4% a year and it's tax-free. So this is so boring. And I don't even get what I'm investing in. It's like, California water supply bond or whatever. I don't understand it. So PWCC have this lending program, which basically how it works is, as I said, let's say, Sean, you have a collection of a thousand trading cards and you're storing them at PWCC. Now, PWCC, when you sent them the cards, they like were able to grade them. And because they're the largest auction house, they have all the data about how much your card is really worth, like they're monitoring in real time, you know. So they basically know, have a very accurate idea about how much your trading card is, collection is worth. So they'll be like, your collection is worth like $50,000, according to us. They also are storing your collection. So they actually have your asset in their possession. And so they'll say like, hey, listen, your collection is worth $50,000. I'll give you a line of credit because you need to um, buy a house or something. So I'll give you a line of credit of like 50% of the value of your collection. So I'll give you like a loan of $25,000 and they're going to charge you pretty high interest on that because you can do the loan just for like one month or something. So it's about 10% a year interest. But this is like way safer than normal loans because like normally a bank giving you a loan, you're banking on like your paychecks, whereas you might just lose your job or like a mortgage. I've never seen your house and it could get blown up by a storm or something versus, or you could just run away. But PWCC, they own your trading card collection. They have custody, right? Yeah, they've got custody. And so basically me as a lender, I can um, lend money against that trading card collection. And it basically pulls all of the users. So basically what for me as a lender, I put in, let's say, $250,000 that I'm lending. And PWCC will lend, spread that across all the loans that they have. And I get paid like 9% a year interest. That is tax at ordinary income. So it's the highest tax. So, you know, up to 50% interest. So it's not the most lucrative thing. You're looking at a stable 9% before tax, maybe 5% after tax. However, it seems very safe to me and is stable income because they've been doing this program for 10 years. They've never had anyone default. If someone did default, as in like they gave them a loan, the guys refused to pay back. PWCC would just sell their trading card collection. They know how much it's worth. They only gave a loan against 50% of the value anyway. So the trading collection should be more than enough in value. If that wasn't enough to pay back your debt, then they use all of the other collection of trading cards they have because it's a pooled. It's not, you're not only doing a loan to one user that you're investing in all of them. What's your current net worth is in, what percent is in these alternative assets? Asset. Maybe 10%. That's a substantial amount. Right. For you. <laughs> That's a lot. I view these loans as like a separate asset class to owning. For me, I view this as like fixed income. Basically, I'm just getting a check in the mail every month. Yeah, that's true. But to a normal person, like to my parents or your parents, they're like, Jack, this is kind of strange. This sure, is, sure. falls on that category of alternative. Probably. You're saying 10% is just the collectibles part, not the lending part. Yeah, well, I mean, the lending, I've only really started with it. So I, I only have a small. Yeah. So right now you do Rally Road, which is 
base, which is everything, baseball cards, cars, boxing gloves, Books, whatever. Yeah. You do masterworks, which is basically yeah. you can buy a portion of a Picasso. You can buy, yeah. uh, it, it's high-end art. What's Otis? It's very similar to Rally Road. It's kind of a mix between Rally Road and Masterworks. They and have high-end art, but also high-end collectibles. What's Mythic Markets? It's more like niche. They're figuring out, they're the, one of the, they're the smallest player, I think. They're figuring out the positioning. Uh, I gave them the feedback. Some of their stuff is like so niche. It's just targeting people that play Magic the Gathering. Like, so they have like this painting of a card from Magic the Gathering. I'm like, what the fuck is that? I don't know what the hell this is. Like Rally Road is awesome because your parents would know most of the assets on there and be like, all right, that's pretty unique. They have like the joystick controller that uh, they used for the NASA mission that landed on the moon. Or they have um, the first edition signed Harry Potter. Like everyone knows this stuff. But then Mythic Markets has like some stuff that's kind of decent, some stuff that's just like, oh, this is the highest value card in Myth in um, Magic the Gathering. It's like this plant. I'm like, what the right, fuck right. is that? <laughs> like, what, what other categories interest you? Because I have a few that I th- I'm thinking about. Do you have any that you're like, there needs to be a marketplace for this, or this is a category that I think is going to pop in the next five years? Well, kind of Valley Road is trying to be the platform with all of those. They have a different tabs for all of the assets. They have wine, all of these. Um, the, they don't have art, but there isn't really much of an asset class in terms of collectibles I could think of that, I guess uh, one I haven't seen is um, maybe like currencies, like unique currencies or historical artifacts from like dinosaur bones or something. That's interesting. Do you guys know, uh, I actually don't know how to pronounce it, even though I go to it all the time. Is it called Hadoki? Hado- it's the, the watch, watch one? Movie? Yeah. Oh, it's, sure. How do you, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's one of those words that you like read it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Hodinki or Hadoki? Oh, yeah, yeah. They just sold a majority of stake. So basically, it's a weird company. I don't know if it's considered a media company or an e-company, but they started out by just blogging about watches. Now they sell special edition watches. And I believe, and Abreu, you'll have to double check, I believe they just sold on Friday or Thursday last week. And I think they sold for around $100 million and they're doing $20 million in revenue. But basically the idea, and I, I'm a very low collector of watches. It's, I'm very new to it. But it's for like roll, you know, high-end Rolexes and things like that. And I know Notice that when I went to go and buy, I bought a two. I own two Rolexes from the '80s and '70s. And if you want to buy an older Submariner, they are so hard to find right now. Watches, I mean, they've always been popular, but Louis Vuitton bought this company, which is an interesting signal. Well, also they also had an interesting background because they were a company that had been going for many years. And then Kevin Rose, who's the founder of Dig and stuff, he had raised maybe like five or ten million, for like a startup studio. He was kind of messing around with ideas and he didn't really know what to work on. And so he just like merged with the H company and then just kind of made them like sexy. He was CEO for like a year or two, then quit. And then so maybe he just made them like more tech respectable. To so that's an, I think that's an interesting category is watches. I think they're growing, you know, a lot of young celebrities, John Mayer, like cool people are like super into them. I think that's categories can actually get a lot bigger. I think that categories is hard because like, Jack was saying, I think that the larger, the most popular platforms will do well as they can just add your category faster than you can become large. There might be some exceptions. Like I was looking at a company to invest in that's comic book space and they have like a good reputation in the comic space. They are, you know, well known in that community. They already have relationships with all the kind of brick and mortar stores. And so, you know, they might be able to get to escape velocity in, let's say, the comic book world, which would maybe have a different population. I think that for the most part, there's the opportunities in this are look a little bit different. So there's things like, Sam, do you know NBA Top Shot? The game you played the bar? No, that's Papa Shot. So Top Shot is a new collectibles type of thing. You know the guys who started Crypto Kitties? Do you remember Crypto Kitties? Yeah, it was like a joke that turned into like a huge thing on accident. Yeah, kind of. So they pivoted to something called NBA Top Shot, or that's what they focus on now. I don't know if they fully pivoted or what. But what it is, is it's a crypto-based thing. These are called NFTs, non-fungible tokens, meaning like for Bitcoin, all Bitcoin are the same. My Bitcoin and your Bitcoin, you can't tell the difference. But like for a collectible, like mine and yours are two distinct things and there may be only 10 of mine in existence, right? So that's what NFTs are. The blockchain now allows for people to build NFT-based things. And so what these guys did was they they initially made CryptoKitties, which was a a collectible of these different types of kitties that they made. And it kind of went viral because it was kind of funny and goofy and whatever. And it kind of faded out. But what they're doing with they made Top Shot is they licensed, they partnered with the NBA 
and they licensed out moments, highlights, basically. So you open up a pack, and instead of getting a player's card, you get LeBron dunking in 2009 on the against the Orlando Magic, this one awesome dunk he had. And you get that. And they basically say that there are 400 of these highlights in these moments, these top shots in existence, you got one of them and that's in your collection now. They tried to turn, instead of a static trading card, they're saying of this video moment that's five seconds long from you know the NBA, that's actually like, and they, they sort of artificially create the scarcity around it by saying there will only be this many of this moment ever created. That bullshit to me, right? Well, everyone's got a different opinion of it. I don't know. I've opened up one pack just to see what it was like. And uh, and actually, Ben, Ben, you should, Ben's on the call too. Ben, you should tell him about the top shot you just opened and your reaction to it. Yeah, I opened a pack and I got a Cam Reddish dunk for like $30. I don't know if you guys know who that is. He's like a subpar NBA like player. Scrub. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, how the fuck is this going to be worth anything at any point? <laughs> this is kind of odd to me. I'm on it right now. They're selling stuff for two, $300. The reason that I wouldn't be bullish on this is because they are the ones claiming that the Scarcity. assets are valuable and facilitating the trading. Like in the basketball or the collectible world, it kind of works because the grading authority saying how scarce something is, is independent of the producer's that are making the basketball stuff. So PSA is the one saying, this is valuable. We have the data. Like if you're just creating, otherwise you could just give a value to every clip on YouTube. Right. (laughs) And uh, also just collecting clips, I think is, I can see why you would talk yourself into the idea and why it would sound cool in a pitch deck, but in practice so far, I don't think it's that cool. So one bit that I do think would be interesting, actually, sorry to interject, John, is that, so I don't think that this like, virtual asset on the blockchain is interesting to me right now. It's too early. And these assets, the video clip has no underlying value. But I would be interested to see Otis or Rally Road or a competitor put physical collectibles on a blockchain. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives that I thought was pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So then I could own, like, let's say they could just tokenize assets. So then a Michael Jordan training card, I would have it as a coin and then I could send it to my friend, the coin, or like sell it on, then you could have like multiple trading platforms, you know, then uh, independent. So that could be kind of interesting. Physical collectibles on... Does Rally or anyone, do they let you send send a fraction to a friend? No. Can you gift? No. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, so, so I would say, okay, one opportunity is these guys who are trying to basically say, okay, shit, all the traditional collectibles, they're already on traditional platforms. So let's create a new collectible, right? That's what they're trying to do with this like moments thing. Now, it may, it may work in an hour. Sorry, just to add in, Sean. Actually, um, Otis is doing one bit like that. Otis is doing collaborations, so they're doing like Otis X some guy. They haven't done that well so far with it, to be honest, because again, they're kind of creating a collectible just for Otis. There's no data on what his actual value is. Then there's another kind of like angle here, which is like making it easier, right? So one of the problems when I was looking at buying this collection was like, I was like, shit, I don't know what any of this is worth. You know, I'd have to send it in to go get graded. That's kind of expensive. And then, uh, you know, we, we looked at, for example, there's a couple of apps that are doing what, what are called live breaks. Sam, do you know what these are? Yeah. So, yes. And you talked about it last week and then people on YouTube are doing it. I looked up this, I watched this Logan Paul video, 10 million views of him opening a, a deck of cards. Uh, and then Pokemon. there's this other guy named, is his name Pac-Man? I think his name is. And it's a channel with 2 million subscribers and all he does is opens packs of cards. Yeah, it's crazy. And this also happens on Twitch. There's this guy Castro who does this on FIFA. FIFA is not even collectibles, right? It's just like within the game, there's these microtransactions and every kid kind of like begging their mom, like, can I, can I get some coins so I can buy more FIFA packs? And the mom's like, what? I already bought you the game. What are you talking about? But like the games have started building in these microtransactions. So this guy will just buy like four grand worth of packs and just open them for three hours. And while he's opening them, people are subscribing and donating to him so he can keep it going. And like for a kid, it's like the dream. It's like, dude, what if my mom gave me $3,000 and I could just buy all the diamond packs and like they could just they just watch him do it instead because that's like the closest they'll ever get so i think that's kind of interesting it's interesting that it's interesting to watch people open but i was 
on one of these. So there's Loop, which is L-O-U-P-E. That's for sports card live break. So it's like a live stream, like a Periscope or a Twitch stream. But what it is, is it's a table and the guy, if you push the buy button, the guy will open up the pack you just bought and you'll see the whole group together will see what you got inside. And then there's Whatnot, which is doing this for Pokemon cards, basically non-sports. And they're doing quite well. And so I was looking at these and I was like, okay, that's cool. Problem was, again, if this guy's opening this pack, I don't really know enough. Like a collector will know, oh my God, that's a rare card. That was worth $360 that you just got. It would take me like a three-day process to figure out what I really got and what it's worth. I was curious to see, have people done the thing? I don't know if you know this, Jack. Have people done the thing where they kind of like use like an iPhone app, kind of like that plant scanner app that basically just lets you just hold up your phone to a card you own and it tells you like, this is this card. It's worth between this and this, depending on how it got graded. You could send it in to go get graded and like find out if it's the $30 version or the $300 version. Do you know if it's something like that exists? Because I think that technology has been used for plant identification, bird identification, like, um, you know, math problem solving. I don't see why they couldn't do that with cards. Well, actually, I had been by, approached by a couple of users in the Trends Facebook group that are working on um, business ideas in the trading card space. And one of them is looking to build an iPhone app that will try and use AI and stuff to give you their opinion about the grade as well. So kind of doing that and grading it. They they would maybe grade it for a dollar instead of $25. Obviously, this is just their opinion, but you could maybe just have a rough idea. So one of the reasons I think that's interesting is because there's a lot of people out there that just have a collection from when they were a kid, when this was not a money-making... And they're just like, yeah, for the hell of it, let's just see what happens. Yeah, they have a binder, and like they're not going to go spend $10 a card to send it into PSA. That's way too extreme. You know, are they really going to spend the time to list each one on eBay and then like fulfill it and whatever? Like, I think that's kind of like interesting. So, so I think there's a latent demand. If you could just aggregate, my friend Xavier did this with books where he just got people to just send in old books that they didn't want. And it's like, it's a social impact project, but like he would sell the books and then he would, it's called Better World Books. And he would sell, he, would, he created a marketplace like Amazon to sell the books. All the books he was getting for free. All he had to do was just receive mail from people in libraries and stuff. And then he would also donate books on their behalf to, you know, libraries in need. So I think somebody could do that if you could get everybody to go into their garage or their attic and go get their card collection and just mail you all their shit. And if you had an efficient way to like scan those, I think that could be a somewhat interesting opportunity, kind of like the junk, the junk. Isn't this, I always get caught up in this shit because I'm like, all right, Jack's talking, he's got a large, potentially maybe millions of dollars involved in this. But he said himself that he knows nothing about sports cards. (laughs) It's so odd, though, that you've got these people that are creating, like, at the end of the day, there's got to be someone who wants to buy this just to hold on to it and look at it or hang it on their wall. Isn't it so weird how this market is being created around people who actually aren't fans of it? Well, I think that's the beauty of it, right? This is just like Bitcoin or many other things, which is that the value is in the belief of it. So some people want it for the tangible use, the same way some people want gold for jewelry, right? They want to put it on the wall. They want to look at it. They want to think fuzzy thoughts about Michael Jordan every time they see it. And other people like Jack are just saying, oh, here's a scarce asset. Here's a rare asset that I can put some percentage of my net worth into. And I see the trends of where this stuff is trading. And I know that not more is being produced. And it's a safe store of value for me. I don't think my wealth that's is going to go That's down, my question. Is it that safe? So for example, let's say that you have a card of a guy and tomorrow he says something racist or he rapes someone or he dies or like, let's well, this say- This happens in NBA. This, uh, guys get injured, right? And their card value goes down. Yeah, like what happens if Jordan does something tomorrow? He has a OJ Simpson moment where it's like, oh my God, you are a, not a good guy. You're a bad guy. Something crazy happens. Does that mean- well, when that- they die, when they die, the price <laughs> goes up 4X <laughs> right. overnight. Jack's waiting for these guys to die. Yeah. I don't know who Wayne Gretzky is, but I can't wait till that guy croaks. I mean, they say any, new, any, any news is good news, right? If he says something racist, it gets banned or whatever, it makes his card more valuable. Like OJ Simpson's cards are probably really valuable. <laughs> That's the opposite true. also happens, right? Because right now, all these rookie cards for like Luka Doncic or uh, in the NFL, this guy Joe Burrow, he was a rookie. He was the number one pick. His card was worth X. He got hurt. He like blew out his knee in a recent game. His card value went down by about 50%. And a whole bunch of people are buying because they're like, look, I believe in Joe Burrow over the 15 years. This is my opportunity to, but it's kind of like a growth asset then. I'm trying to make a bet because I think I can get a 4X multiple on this if I'm right. And that game of being right and wrong, I think is 
what makes it fun. Just like, you know, in many ways, people do that with the stock market, right? It's like, I love listening to mob stories. And I listen, I follow all, on YouTube, all these guys who are in the mob. And they're like, yeah, uh, two things would happen. First of all, we would take so much money for a sports game. And in the 70s and 80s, you know, the athletes weren't making as much. And so they were able to like, we were able to bribe them. Or the athletes were notorious gamblers and we would get into debt with us and we would say, all right, make sure that you this happens next game so we can bet money on it. I wonder if you're going to see anything like that going on because this is like one of the very few assets. I guess you could do this with stocks, although there's way more regulation around it. But this is one of the few assets that it seems like you can, you can meaningfully manipulate. Yeah, so you're highlighting a good thing. So actually Otis, their tagline is they want to be the NASDAQ of everything. However, unlike the NASDAQ, NASDAQ has all these regulations that you can't do insider trading and stuff. Here is the Wild West, like anything goes. There's no insider trading rules or whatever. Like that's why there's also room for opportunity because it's so new, there's no rules yet. Jack, if Jack wanted to, could partner up with three other people and could pump. You could pump and dump like all day probably on these assets because there's not enough volume. That's what I'm uh, saying. Like, it's like crazy. You could, move, you could take $10 million probably and you could move markets and just profit every single time you do because of that. In the same way people did this with ICOs, kind of like these shit coins in 2017, 2018. There's this famous episode from uh, Entourage, that TV show Entourage. And uh, I'm not a baseball guy, so I'm not going to remember this. But there was a baseball player in the 60s and 70s for the Yankees, Sonny something. I don't know. Maybe you guys know. And one of the guys on Entourage was like, hey, my uh, grandpa's neighbors with X player, they say he's really, really sick. He's about to die. And so they go and buy his card for $250,000. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, my grandpa said that he recovered. And they're like, they're like, shit, and they lose all this money. What, what's that, you know who I'm talking about? The no. famous, yeah, I don't, I don't have to remember. But anyway, it was it, like, I'm afraid of that happening. In terms of the tampering or sort of, sort of like the mob, I mean, a sports betting is the way better way to go about it if you wanted to do it, right? Betting on a game and getting somebody to shave points or throw is, is much easier than like decapitating or killing somebody for their card value, right? So I think sports betting is a much bigger market, would be much easier to tamper with. Now, there is, of course, risk, right? If there was no risk, there would be no reward. So the risk that you're talking about are the risks that go associated with this. And I think that's like, okay. I wanted to bring up two other things that are interesting. I probably should have led with this one, which is eBay. Sandy Koufax, by the way. Sandy Oh, uh, Sandy. Okay, not Sonny Koufax. <laughs> Sonny. I'm, I'm so not a baseball guy. I know he's like a big deal. So eBay announced today that they had a new program, which is interesting. And with it, they released some new news. So the program, I'll say, was really simple. It's like, if you're selling a trading card that's worth uh, $20 or less in value, now they guarantee that you can mail it for a dollar envelope guaranteed by USPS, which is like 70% less than it would normally cost. So it's, it's really helpful for, for sending, you know, the, the buying and selling of trading cards. The reason they did this and they announced this number is because in 2020, they, eBay, which is still the biggest platform that all these other guys are trying to unbundle, did 45 million cards sold in 2020. If you just take an average of $20, that's 900 million of GMV just on trading cards, let alone any other type of collectible that's sold on eBay, right? So that's the like, the size of the prize, I would say is probably that or double that. If you just add everybody else up, they probably add up to maybe half of what eBay is, something like that. So let's say it's 1.5 billion in GMV is kind of like where this market is today. Not the biggest market, but also much bigger than, you know, the average person would expect, you know, about like Pokemon cards and garbage pail kids and baseball cards and stuff like that. So I think that was pretty interesting to see the scale that eBay has on this stuff. And they're being really aggressive now because they know that they already like messed up with sneakers. Sneakers got taken away by StockX and Goat and stuff like that. And so if you go on Reddit right now, every Reddit ad I see is eBay talking about how you can trade sports cards easily on, on eBay. You can trust them. And uh, it's going to be hard for them to fight off all these competitors. They've also been featuring on their homepage trading cards for quite a long time. So, you know, they're pushing that to every user that visits the homepage of eBay. Here's another opportunity or here's another idea that I've seen that I actually really like. So what are the opportunities people are trying to stretch? So there's Rally Road and others who are trying to be the marketplace. They're trying to beat eBay. Then you have people who are trying to create new collectible moments or items. That's like NBA Top Shot. And then you have people that are what I'll call making the on-ramp easier. So that's kind of what I was saying where I was like, if, even if I bought a pack, I wouldn't know what the hell it's worth. So there's a company that we I talked to yesterday about potentially investing in. It's called Dibs. And actually, uh, D-I-B-B-S.io. I'll tell you a funny story about the pitch. It had like every red flag you can imagine during the pitch. I hope the guy's not listening. I feel bad if I do. But like, I got to say, it was a hilarious pitch. He's like, a nice guy. But he's like, 
Yeah, I'll tell you the five red flags. Red flag number one, he's like, oh, my background is I, you know, was doing social media marketing. And I was like, Ooh. that's like, to me, like, I know that type of person. So Did he have was, abs? Yeah, he was like, good looking, funny, oh. and had abs. And yes. I was like, okay, already I don't want to invest. You're too good looking for, for, yes. for me. Second thing was, oh yeah, I live in Colombia. I live in Medellin. And I was like, ah, oh, why do you live in Colombia? I don't, I don't want to know this story. You're like, okay, that's already like- Is an like, American living in Colombia? American living in Colombia. Uh. Yeah. Did he have an ICO under his belt? Yes. So that was the next thing. Oh I my spent, God. Spent the last three years doing uh, marketing for random ICOs. <laughs> oh my God. I just predicted this. Does he have a Ferrari? Okay. Very close. Very close. So there's two other ones. One was, I can't say his name. I don't want to totally, totally bash the guy because it's just for jokes, but his name is the name of a city and his partner's name is like this total white guy name who lives in Santa Monica. And I was like, Oh God, these names, I can't even deal with these names. And then the last piece was he had posted, I was stalking him on Instagram during the call. And he had posted like this video of like Grant Cardone. He was like, Grant Cardone is the man. I love Grant Cardone. I aspire to be like him one day. And I was like, you know, no offense to Grant Cardone. I think actually it's kind of interesting, but like anybody who admires him that like, I'm like, okay, that's the sort of like level of depth you have around kind of your, you know, who you are, what you admire in many ways. And so like for people who are like, Gary Vee is the most brilliant businessman I've ever met. And it's like, you know, he's just so inspirational. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, I'm glad he's inspiring you. But, you know, <laughs> that's one specific type of like celebrity entrepreneur, maybe for that to be your hero. This so guy just checked all the boxes, man. But th Poor their guy. idea is actually really good. <laughs> so one thing I really liked that they're doing their idea is that you just buy into a player. So how do you make this so approachable for the average person? So you just say, hey, you think LeBron is awesome? Or let's say, let's take an up-and-coming player like Giannis or Luca. You know, these like NBA players who are still young in their career. You say, oh, you believe in Luca? You could just buy into the Luca collection. So they're turning players into like their own little ETF of a collection of cards that are associated with that player. So you don't have to know that this is a 19, you know, or sorry, like a 2010 rookie card of this mint grade from this base set collection that's never going to get reproduced or whatever, right? You don't have to know all that. You just have to buy into the player at a certain price point and you know that it's collateralized by the underlying card assets. And so I think that's actually like a kind of a smart idea to let people buy into these kind of like known entities and not have to know the science underneath underneath what they're doing. So I, I like that well, idea of making it more approachable. Well, I mean, the idea that I was having on this call, I, I was just thinking you could abstract it a step further. Like if you get someone who actually knows financial markets, they could just launch an actual ETF on the New York Stock Exchange. So I would just start with, well, one, you could just have alternative assets as an ETF, just have it so broad, but then going in deeper, then you could ha just have sports cards or art um, because like actually one guy I know, he's just launched an ETF for Bitcoin in um, Egypt and Africa region and Europe. You can't trade it in US for some reasons, but um, he's just making a bunch of money, just made an ETF. Bitcoin. How easy is it to make an ETF? Because I know people have been trying this for Bitcoin in the US and just getting blocked. But I don't know. Well, if just don't do it in the US. Just I don't do know it if that's a Bitcoin regulation. Do it in Colombia. Holla at your boy. Yeah. <laughs> <Trip> guy. <laughs> oh, that was, the, that was the other one. He's like, oh, yeah, we, we use the blockchain. And I was like, oh, why do you use the blockchain? He's like, um, sort of our secret sauce. I don't really want to talk about it. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> Hottie San Diego, that's his name. Hottie San Diego doesn't doesn't know his shit. Okay, so you could launch. So so, uh, Jack, do you know how long this guy was working on launching an ETF in Egypt or wherever you just said? Well, you can. It's quite big actually, and you can trade it in. Um, he's in Egypt, but then it's basically you just can't do it in the US because of some rules. But um, basically, what you I don't know how long it takes. I would guess maybe like six to twelve months or something. Right. But basically, what you can also do is the simpler. Thing, how these things often start is you there's ETFs and then there's indexes. So indexes you can't actually trade against. They are just a way of tracking. But right. then basically people can create ETFs that like mirror an index. So there's probably already an index for the art world. Just create an ETF allows it to be tradable. You could do this in Europe. So I was looking at th so this company that's behind this stuff is called Panini. And Panini is a European company. And what ended up happening, I was like, why does this European company make all the basketball cards? And what happened was Panini was like a billion dollar company back in 2009, something like that. They were doing a billion dollar revenue. It's probably worth a bit more than that. And they were big in the space in soccer, I believe, and in Europe. And I don't know the full history, but what happened was they came to the US 
and they outbid Tops and Upper Deck for the basketball rights. Uh, so they got the the NBA rights. They outbid them, and so all the basketball cards that are like super super hot right now, like that's probably like the most bought into card collection right now, is basketball cards, and they're all by this company called Pr- the, you know the the cards are by Prism. Prism is owned by Panini, and Panini's the maker of it. And so I don't know how long these rights work, but they got basketball, they got hockey, they got for baseball, they got like a certain type of right where they can't show the player in uniform they can show like something else but they were basically pretty aggressive and they they outleaped uh, those guys and so i think you could do potentially an etf in europe where you have to have the belief in alternative assets and maybe the regulation is looser there so i like that this could be like the way chamath and these guys are making like a hundred million dollars per spec um this could be like that is that how much you're right. making by the way oh more than that dude I think he's making like $100 million or more per SPAC and he's doing 26 SPACs. They they, they get like 20% of the capital raised as the manager. And some of these are like hundred millions. I just had another idea. So basically the opposite of that um, kitty cards thing, whatever. I think lots of stuff is going virtual, but I think there just is intrinsic value in physical. The more stuff goes virtual and virtual, that's why I'm bullish about physical stuff like Harry Potter stuff stored in a vault is you're preserving a time capsule. Like right. physical is important. I just had another idea, a um, bit more niche, but couldn't they just create trading card, physical trading cards, but for like esports players? Yeah, so there's a couple of companies that are doing this. Trying to do it for esports. The more popular version of it, actually, because esports players themselves are actually not that popular, but mm-hmm. the idea of like a YouTuber slash Twitch streamer, which is YouTube, basically yeah. the subset of either a really good player who actually gets famous because otherwise esports players kind of like this nameless, faceless, only the hardcore people know about them. There's a company called LMAO. So what I saw this come out and I thought this was interesting, or, or LAMO, LAMO, LAMO cards, or not cards, they're, what they're doing is dolls. U2s is another one that's making these little collectible dolls that yeah, are on yeah, yeah, either yeah. memes or, or influencers. And what LAMO did was they partnered with the four biggest Twitch streamers. And the way they did this was they gave a piece of the company to the agency that manages it, or the agency that manages it incubated this company. I'm not fully sure what, what the deal was, but there was this agency called Loaded. And what Loaded did was they said, hey, we represent Ninja, who's the number one streamer in the world, also Dr. Disrespect, also Summit and Lyric. And what these guys did was they made this collectible little figurine, action figure basically, of each of those streamers. They actually sell them in physical stores. They did a, a activation at like Comic-Con where they built like a six foot tall version of it, put it outside and said, scan your phone on this, like uh, put your, hold your phone up to this. And they put a QR code on the body so that when you held it up on your camera, it launched their website and said, this is coming soon. And it also was like an AR thing. Like when you were holding your phone up to it, action figure like came to life like a transformer and had like smoke coming out and whatever. It was like, buy this thing coming soon. Pretty intense. It didn't take off as big as I thought it would have, but I don't think that that's a bad idea. I would still go after that if I could, right? Because it's the same idea, right? Look, what's the difference between LeBron and Ninja at this point, right? Both of them have 20 million followers and, you know, armies of 13-year-olds who think that they're gods. Could you turn that into a physical trading card asset and license their brand and likeness? Probably in a way that you could never do with sports because it's all too, it's done already. Is anyone doing like income share agreements for Twitch people? Now you're talking Sean's language. Like someone is just a brand new streamer and, you know, you join together to give them $100,000 because you think they're going to be massive. And then in exchange, they give you 25% of their next five years income. So there's uh, two things that are like this that are interesting. One is uh, some people have tried to copy the uh, K-pop model. So this is how K-pop works, right, in Korea, which is... They, they basically say, okay, come to our factory, right? We have a studio with cameras and lights. You get to come into our accelerator like a Y Combinator. And we're going to teach you how to build your brand and all this stuff. But we get a piece of you and we get to represent you as your agency. And I think that's you know, what, like, what, what BTS, what's it called? BTS? Yeah. I don't know if BTS came out of that. Maybe they did. But that's, that's a very common, very popular thing in Korea. So some people have tried that in the US to mixed results. But the bigger version of this was actually the other day, Mr. Beast, who's one of the probably the fastest growing YouTuber. Are you guys familiar with Mr. Beast? Yeah. He does these videos that are like kind of just like random ass He like will give away five cars to people who need them. He'll go to a restaurant, he'll tip $20,000 and just record the waiter's reaction. Or he'll say, he'll buy a Lamborghini and tell his four friends, come here, put your hand on the Lamborghini. And the last person to have their hand on this Lamborghini gets the Lamborghini. And he just films them 48 hours and then someone has to go pee. And then they, you know, like eventually they all fall asleep or whatever. And one person's left. So what he said was like, Yo, there's all these up and coming channels that I think could make really good content. I would love to do like an ISA, like I'll promote you and you keep doing your thing. I'll help you, but I'll take, you know, 10, 15% of your, your channel's revenue. 
this is like a pretty compelling idea because I think more than the you have to do it like an income share agreement where you're not just giving them capital, you have to help them get the exposure in the same way that Lambda School helps you get the job and actually trains you to learn how to code. Um, it's a little bit more than just the, the money for future money. How's that different to getting an agent? Because Mr. Beast can blow you up, right? So he can shout you out on his channel. He can basically king make anybody who he thinks has the raw ingredients but what's the incentive for him to shout out these cool people? Well, if he owned a piece of them, like a if he had a portfolio of these up-and-comers, so he's not on the content treadmill every day, he uses his following to put the next person on the treadmill and he just you know sits back and relaxes from there. Yeah, I'm into all this shit. I think that this is, is we're at the hour. I think that this is, I, I want to go work at Rally Road. That's what I want to do. How fun would it be to work at those places? What type of returns are you seeing investing in these IPOs when you think, like, I guess, what's good? What's normal? Is it super volatile? What, what are you seeing? I'm not sure about blended returns. And I'm doing this with a longer time horizon. It, it's kind of hard to quickly flip stuff. But um, Rally Road has had some awesome exits um, in the past year. So basically, you can buy in at the IPO stage, and then maybe someone off the platform is acquiring it for double the price, quadruple the price. Or you can just buy a bunch of shares during the IPO and then like flip them to someone else later. You know, The challenge is that you kind of have to have some money to start with. I think the people, if you're coming there, not with much money, like if you're coming there wanting to buy $25 worth, I don't think you're going to make much money because um, you're just like washed out by the whales. They all, all these platforms are having stuff like for me as a whale, like they're doing like pre-sales for me. Right. Like I can just buy in this before anyone like, else actually um, sees it. JP Morgan does this or whoever will do this before an IPO, right? They go to their big yeah. clients and they say, hey, you get the early bid on the IPO before DoorDash goes public or whatever. So I'm not sure about blended returns. Pretty low at the moment because, um, as I said, looking, want to have a, a few year horizon. I mean, hopefully, I, guess I, I don't. Do you have like a goal or you have like a 10, goal? 10, or 10 to 20% a year. What did you say? 10 to 20% a year return. Wow. Yeah, I mean, if something's like an alternative asset, you, it should be paying outsized returns for the risk. Are you doing it for that reason or you're just doing it because you just want to do it? Just both. Yeah, it's kind of fun. By the way, Ben just linked us this thing in the chat. So after Mr. Beast tweeted that out, he then made a video saying, get this per random person a million subscribers on YouTube. And he just tagged this guy at Zealous. And if you go to Zealous's YouTube channel now, he has almost 2 million subscribers no now, thanks, thanks to Mr. Beast, right? So he just literally, it's like if Sequoia could invest in you and get you your first 10 million DAU, basically. That, that's basically what, what he was able to do. Wow. What is that, that one that he got? 2 million views? What's that called? Zealous. Z-E-A-L-O-U-S. Yeah, I posted it. I'm not sure how many he had beforehand, but I think it was a small account. And he made a video about it. Like he made it into a contest. I mean, that just wow. proves the power of you know, Mr. Beast. I just got one other idea, um, though, is Sam related to the um, Houdinki thing you were saying, that are they a media company or are they an investment company? But kind of interesting to see like a media type company join, um, tapped onto Rally Road or something, you know? like. Well, that's kind of what they are. You know, like a good example of this is Huckberry. Huckberry is a weird store. Huckberry is a store that sells just like guy stuff. So camping gear or guy clothes or outdoor stuff. It's like REI, but for like kind of yuppie guys. And they tell the story behind the clothing. And with Rally, Rally Road, whenever I go to the stuff, I'm a car fan. So I like hearing the history of that car or I like hearing the history of that baseball card. I want to know the history around it. And I actually do think that they do need to do a better job of telling the story because I used to work for this TV show called American Pickers. And we had six or seven million viewers a week at the time when I worked there. We were number two on cable. So it was the second most popular show in the country. And the guy, Mike Wolf, the main guy, would go and tell the story behind a gas pump. He would find a 1960s gas pump and he would say, this was created by Mobile Oil. Mobile Oil made it this way because in World War II, they didn't have enough supplies. So they had to do that, whatever. And people would come in from around the world and they would buy this gas pump because of that story. And they would pay a massive premium for it. And I do think that a lot of these platforms, they need to do a much better job of telling a story. And if they could copy media companies' strategy of storytelling, I think they'll have a significantly larger business. And I think Ben said something about, where was this? Someone's a newsletter for fractional assets. What are you, what was that? Atlin Insights. They're, they're basically a new, new company. They're raising money right now. They're trying the media approach in addition to having a, as they say, a stock market for physical things where it's you know, a buy and sell platform for, for collectibles. If somebody's listening to this and you're like, okay, yeah, I don't know shit 
about Pokemon cards or whatever. One thing I would recommend is I've learned over time that what smart guys like Jack kind of do as their hobby or where they start kicking the tires and it seems a little bit weird and it's kind of like laughable. Then you're like, wait, you know, four years later, that's going to be the thing that's really interesting that like you're going to wish you got in. Like this is how, how crypto was for me. I kind of ignored it initially. Enough of my kind of really smart friends were dabbling with the stuff on the weekends. And when they were dabbling with it on the weekends, that was a strong signal. And actually, I just went to my old, old laptop and I found the Bitcoin that I have stored on that laptop. And the Bitcoin I have from back then, right, I think I had taken like a $2,000 or $3,000 budget and just been like, okay, I'm just going to buy some Bitcoin. I bought a little bit of Ethereum as well uh, when that came out. And that's now worth like almost a hundred grand. And I don't know if that's going to happen, right? Like Bitcoin was one of these things that panned out as sort of the investment of the decade. But I would say just for a learning exercise, I would go download Rally and Otis and, and Loop or one of these live breaking platforms as well. And I would take like $300, right? Like go take like, I don't know, 90 days of coffee money, like skip your daily coffee and like be like, okay, that's 300 bucks and go like get a little bit of skin in the game just to learn how these platforms work and look at, and then you'll, once you've skin in the game, you'll start checking on it and you'll start learning a little bit about it. And like, then you decide later, like if this is a good idea or bad idea or whatever, nine times out of 10, it's not something you're going to pursue, but that's like the simple way to to get in. And you don't have to take such a huge amount of money to, to do it. Well, this one went a little long. We normally keep them at an hour, but I think it's good. This was fun. Anything else we want to go over, Sean? No, I mean, thanks to Jack for coming on. Jack, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that we should have? You learn by watching how the markets react over time that I've just seen like, oh, okay, this Pokemon thing, it was available at this price and then now has gone up to this price. And I would kind of just see how the markets move. I mean, one insight is for Masterworks, they have a minimum of $10,000 per art piece because these are like $5 million pieces of art. But what they do is they segment their users. Like when they're doing Google Ads and stuff, they're like, hey, if you have over $10,000 to spend, go here. If you don't, then they direct them to the trading platform where you can buy a piece for like $20 a piece. And so actually what I'm observing on Masterworks is that on on average, like every single piece on their platform, none of them are trading below the IPO price. So basically, if you had bought, you would not have lost money. The challenge is that they don't have much liquidity yet. So you wouldn't be able to like sell all your shares all at once because $10,000 would flood the market. But it is kind of interesting observing on the countryside, Rally Road, a bunch of their cars are like, some of them are down 50% from the IPO price. So mm-hmm. it's not to say that you can't lose money on this. That's why Rally Road does seem to have more accurate market for what the true valuation of the set is because some of their assets are trading below IPO price. Gotcha. Uh, love it. Okay, and Jack, do you have a lot of Bitcoin? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. what's what's your take on Bitcoin? What's your like? So I was into all of the different altcoins and stuff like when it was at the bubble a few years ago. You could very easily see when the market was going to crash because I went to a friend's wedding in England, met this random guy and he's like, oh yeah, I just... um, took a mortgage, an extra mortgage on my house and put it all into crypto. crypto. (laughs) And I'm like, what are you doing? And then, so that's what I said, like when your taxi driver is giving you stock tips, that's the time to get out of that market. So for me now, I'm buying for the long term, but I only uh, have Bitcoin and Ethereum. Okay, that's great. By the way, I, I did the same. I went to a wedding in DC and my aunt who has a thick Indian accent tried to tell me about how great Ethereum was. And she's like, Ethereum's very good. And I was like, you know, Ethereum, what's so good about it? She's like, it's very good, very good investment. And I was like, oh God. So I came back and I tried to sell every crypto I had. And this is when Bitcoin was at 3000. So I, I had gotten oh, wow. like a 10X and I sold as much as Coinbase would let me. And then I hit the limits and I was so upset. And it turned out to be a horrible move, right? If I just held it, it would have done better, which reminds me of, uh, I think your rule of thumb is absolutely right, right? It did... It ran up to 20,000 and then it crashed back down. But there's another phrase that goes around around uh, money is the bubble that never pops. It's unlike other assets because there is no checks and balances around it. Like a stock can, like Tesla stock is like running up out of control. And at some point they will have to deliver profits against that valuation. And if they ever have a setback in their production or their profits or whatever, it's going to hurt their stock. There is no revenue. There is no profits of Bitcoin. The price is the stock. The price is the profits. And so the more the price goes up, the more people believe that this thing will keep going up. And uh, that is the beauty of Bitcoin. My understanding is it's either in the top five or top 10 of all currencies in the world right now in terms of 
assets in that currency. So could easily become the number one held currency in the world. It's very appealing because it's not owned by any government or whatever. Right. I had a long talk with my wife last night because I told her how much Bitcoin I'd been buying over the last two weeks. And she's like, what, what are you doing? She was more like, why didn't you talk about this? And I was like, it's an investment. I'm not buying things. It's an investment. And she's like, that's like if I went and bought a house and didn't tell you. And I was like, no, but this is an investment. It's not like I'm buying things. Speaking of which, like, Sean, did you ever sell your house? Yes, I did. Was it a bloodbath? Yeah, I lost like 180K total. Oh, oh. Well, I mean, yeah, that sucks. But like, I would have thought it would have been even worse. Well, it's just like, right, like you lose that out of your down payment, right? So I lost like whatever, 20% of the money I had in the in the property I lost, right? So it's a 20% loss. It's not... That sucks. Not great. That's not great. But like the way that I see the headlines now in San Francisco, it's like death and over and carnage. I'm lucky that I got out at all. I think it would have gotten much worse. That's what I'm I, saying. I only had one offer. <laughs> I had one offer and I took it and ran. Who was it? Like a family or a, just a rich person or what? Yeah, they are like kind of an exec at Wealthfront. And they're both execs at Wealthfront. One's like the head of whatever engineering or design. The other one's head of, of design or something like that. I don't know. They're both like kind of like top-ish people at Wealthfront, I guess. So they, they were unaffected, you know, by the, by, you know, they weren't like, the economy was not hurting their business necessarily. Right. But uh, it seems everyone else is getting the hell out of there. Yeah. Tough. I mean, everyone I know at least. But yeah. Create an ETF to be able to short San Francisco. Ah, now you're talking. I, I really think, Jack, I'm surprised you're not in the SPAC game. I'm surprised you're not the guy with the ETF in Egypt or like, you know. Well, but the thing about Jack is he's got the IQ and the ability to pretty much pull off all this stuff. But he's missing one major component. What's that component, Jack, that you're missing? You know what it is. Um, um, social, emotional <laughs> intelligence. Or... You're incredibly lazy. Okay, that as well. <laughs> you, I, I'll, I'll say, Jack. Well, I'll say, Jack. Why don't you do this? And the answer is always uh, too much work. Way overboard on things that most people wouldn't lift a finger on. Didn't you like spend like a month building a, a chair, like an, a super ergonomic chair for yourself? <laughs> oh, I didn't actually uh, send you the photo. I actually um. I, I bought the artwork now, which is like the actual. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, but SPACs, I can't say anything, but actually like speak to me in like three months about SPACs. Oh, okay, okay, great. I love it's it. It's crazy, crazy. Okay, That's we funny. should stop recording and we should start talking to <laughs> <then. laughs> All right, we should, we should wrap it up. Thanks, Jack, for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Guys.